John chapter 14. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. Give careful attention to God's Word as it's read. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Back in the 19th century, in the categorization of sermons, there was one category of sermons called the occasional sermon. And the occasional sermon was not a sermon that was preached occasionally, once in a while. It was on the occasion of some notable event. And preachers would take that notable event and they would make that the, the focus of their sermon. And I'm sure there have been a number of sermons preached on the occasion of the COVID-19 virus. But I have avoided that, um, at least for this reason. I tried that a couple times in my ministry and it did not go well. When there were a couple of big world events, I thought, well, we should address this, and I, I tried to build the sermon on the basis of that. But what I felt I was doing was fitting Scripture into the event rather than fitting the event into Scripture. And so I may be particularly bad at it, and that's why you probably won't hear me doing that sort of thing. However, I will say I was happy to find that in our series on the Gospel of John, we are in a text which begins with this. Let not your hearts be troubled. And that seems to be particularly appropriate, always appropriate, of course, but it is particularly appropriate when the times are very, very troubling. Now, this is a striking note that Jesus plays here because he says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. But that is after John, the author of this text, has used this word three times, troubled, to describe Jesus and Jesus' heart. If you look back at the tomb of Lazarus in chapter 11, verse 23, it says, Jesus was troubled. 
If you look back uh, to 12.27, when he was contemplating the arrival of his hour, that is, the arrival of his death, he was troubled. And also, when he announced in chapter 13, verse 21, Judas' betrayal, it says that he was troubled. So three times we've been told that Jesus was troubled, and yet he goes to his disciples and says, let not your hearts be troubled. He takes the trouble so that his disciples don't have to be troubled. But he had certainly given them many troubling pieces of news, hasn't he? He has announced that one of them would betray him, chapter 13, verse 21. He has announced in 1333 that he was going away to a place where they could not go. And he had also just announced in the previous verse, at the end of chapter 13, that Peter was going to deny him three times. And in the minds of some who did not know who the betrayer was, they might have began, begun to wonder, and maybe Peter himself began to wonder if he was perhaps the one who was going to betray Jesus. Very, very troubling news indeed. And in the midst of this very troubling news, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He has just told them that their world is about to have the bottom fall out of it. They had built their lives for uh, over two years, perhaps approaching three years, on their, their alliance to Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm leaving, and you cannot come where I'm going. The bottom was falling out of their worlds, and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. But he didn't just leave it at that. He didn't just tell them the negative, what to avoid. He told them what to do. And this is the antidote. This is the what to do instead of letting our hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now this could be read as, you believe in God, you believe also in me, but it looks in this context to be a commandment. Believe in God and believe also in me. Now, belief. What is belief? Belief involves the acknowledgement of truth. You can say uh, that you believe a truth statement, and you are assenting to the truthfulness of, of any sort of statement. That's part of belief. But there's another part of belief that is, is prominent here, and that is the aspect of trust. Because we can believe, we can assent to a statement, but still be anxious in ourselves because we're not trusting. And so not only do we need to believe what Jesus says, but we need to trust in the one who is saying it. And so we could read it this way. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Don't just believe what I say, but trust in me that what I'm doing is the best thing for you. Now, there are challenges, serious challenges, to the, the translation and the interpretation of verses 2 and 3. These are very familiar verses, but they're not without their challenges. We hear them often at funerals, and I've used them many times at funerals, where Jesus says, "...in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so..." Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Here it says a question. Other translation has that as a statement. 
Uh, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that you may that that where I am, you may be also two major approaches to this, two major interpretations. One of those is probably the one with which you're most familiar. And it's the one that I've I've assumed basically since I began hearing this and reading this. And that is that Jesus is saying, I'm going away to my Father. I'm going to heaven. You cannot come now, but I'm going and there I will prepare a place for you. And then when I come back again in my second coming, I will take you to where I am. And I think that's probably still the likely interpretation. However, you will see next week, as we get into the second part of uh, this chapter 14, that this word, this word room is used only one other time in the Gospel of John, and it's in verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our room with him, our dwelling with him. And here it's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the other interpretation is that Jesus was going away in death, but He was coming right back after the resurrection, and then He would give them the Holy Spirit, and then He and His Father would room with them, that they would dwell with them. Now, the good thing about these two interpretations, by the way, uh, when I get really stuck, I have a couple of my professors who are, are brilliant New Testament and Old Testament professors, and they are very kind, and I write them. And I say, dear Dr. So-and-so, I'm stuck on this one. Would you help me out? And so I asked for help on this one, and my brilliant professor wrote back and said, I haven't been able to decide either. But he also said, but don't worry too much about it, because both of these things are true. Both of these things are true. That Jesus was going away by death. He was going to return to His Father, and He will come again, and He will have a place for us ready and take us to that place so that we will be with the Father and the Son forever. And it's true that after his death, he was going to rise again from the dead and he was going to pour out his Holy Spirit and accompany his disciples with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would be dwelling together with his people forever. So both of these interpretations are true. And we don't need to really worry too much. The point is this. Do not let your hearts be troubled because you will be with me forever and you will be with my Father forever. On either one of these readings. Now, we're in John chapter 14, uh, verses 1 to 14, and we have just seen that Jesus prepares a place for us and we will be with Him in that place. Now, I cannot say, and this is another reason why I tend to shy away from occasional sermons, I cannot say God's purposes in this pandemic. I don't have enough insight into that to know. But I do know that it's a good thing for us always to be reminded to build our lives on eternal verities, eternal truths, rather than passing props. Because these passing props will sooner or later get kicked out from under us. And we will be cast back upon our deepest trusts. And so, whatever God might be doing through this pandemic, at least that is a good lesson for us always to be learning. To trust in the one who is always true, the one who provides eternal life for those who believe in Him.
Now, they were not particularly satisfied with this explanation. And so they ask a question. After Jesus says in verse 3, uh, he says, I will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And then Thomas raises a, uh, an objection and says, now wait a minute, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way to where you're going if we don't even know the way and where you're going? But Jesus says, you know the way. And there is in these verses, there is this, this tension, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, between believing and not believing. Well, here it's this tension between do they know or do they not know. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. Now, the reason they knew the way is we'll see who that way is, and they already know, knew who that way was, but they weren't getting it yet. He says, you, don't, you already know the way. And Thomas says, I, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? And then Jesus says very, very clearly, one of the most well-known verses from the Gospel of John, and rightly so, I am the way. That's why they knew the way, because they knew Jesus. They had been with Him for over two years. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And He says, I am the way, and then that last phrase emphasizes that He is the only way. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Now, we have already seen a couple of these emphases, haven't we? We have already seen Jesus emphasize that He is the truth, and we have seen from the first verses of the Gospel of John that He is the life. And so those are something of a a summary. Uh, He is the truth. He is the life. But the new idea here, the new emphasis here, is that He is the way. He is the way to get to God. And He is the only way to get to God. Now, um, this didn't satisfy them completely either, because he says in verse 7, if you had known me, so first he tells them in verse 4, you do know the way, because you know me. Then he says, if you had known me, so they knew, but they didn't know, as they should have known. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. So you know the way and you have seen the Father. And then Philip. Thomas raised the first objection. Now Philip raises the second objection. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. You said we've seen the Father. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Now, he presents this as if it were some small thing. And that'll be enough. Just do that and that'll be enough for us. This has a history. If you go back to Exodus chapter 33, Moses had asked for something like this as well. As he was leading this rebellious people out of Egypt, and he's struggling with his leadership, he says to God, show me your glory. And he gets to see the the back end of the glory of God as he has passed by. But in the Gospel of John, he begins by saying, the Word, Jesus, the eternal Word, the Son of God became flesh, and we beheld His what? Glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the petition of Moses has finally been answered. Moses said, show me your glory. And the glory came in the person of the Son of God who became one of us. And in Him we have seen the glory of the Father. And so, 
Philip says, just, just show us the Father. And, and Jesus, with a gentle rebuke, says, Philip, have I been so long with you and still you do not know me? And here another astounding statement, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, verse, uh, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So this is something of a recap of the Gospel of John. What have we heard from Jesus? We've heard His words. From where did His words come? The words came from the Father. And we have seen Jesus' works. And what kind of works were they? They were divine works. Where did He get those works? Who gave them those works? They were the works of the Father. And He says, Philip, disciples, you have seen the Father because the Father dwells in Me and I dwell in the Father. If you've seen Me, you have seen the Father. These are astounding statements. Clear statements as He's getting towards the end of His life on earth and He wants His disciples to understand clearly who He is. Now, notice that Jesus Jesus emphasized two essential doctrines or truth statements. And uh, these are both difficult statements for many people to accept because they are astounding statements. They are the second one. The second one is that Jesus is distinct from God because he keeps referring to the Father as someone else. So Jesus has a distinct identity from the Father. But then he says he is identified with the Father. He is the same being as the Father. You will probably recognize, if you know something about Christian theology, you will recognize part of the doctrine of the Trinity. That there is one God... And that one God exists in three distinct persons, each of what, each of which, each of whom is God Himself. And so we see that here. There's really no way around that. Jesus is saying the Father as someone else, and then He's saying I and the Father are one. So Jesus is distinct from the Father, and Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus is God who became a human. That's, that's one of the astounding statements that he makes once again here. And then he makes the other statement, which he's already made before this in verse 6, and that is that he is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to get to God. Now, these statements are difficult because in our day, and even in the day of the New Testament, there were in the minds of many, many ways to get to God. All roads led to Rome, and the idea was many ways to get to God. And you will hear that sort of idea today. But if we think about this, these two statements hang together. And we cannot deny the second if we affirm the first. If Jesus really is God in the flesh, and if Jesus really has given His life for the sins of His people, then, my friends, there is no other way. Because that is unique. There can be no other way to get to God if He is who He says He is. And by the way, in the history of the church, when the church goes astray... Oftentimes, the church goes astray in what we believe about who Jesus is. We try to water that down a bit, but inevitably what happens if we water down the doctrine of Jesus, the doctrine of Christ, 
called Christology, then we also, we also pervert and dilute and adulterate the doctrine of salvation. You see, if we change who Jesus is into something that he is not, then we change the nature of salvation. These stand or fall together. So as, as astounding as these statements might be, we cannot remove these from the New Testament and still have anything resembling Christianity. But I, I maybe have said that in a sort of defensive posture, but let me say it in a positive way. This is good news. There is a way to God, and Jesus is that way. And the Son has become one of us so that He might take us to God, giving Himself for our lives, so that through faith in Him, we might get to God. Sinners that we are, we might be forgiven and reconciled to our God. That's the good news of the Gospel. Now, that's... um, that is the, the, the second statement. The first statement, Jesus prepares a place for us. Jesus is the way to God, the second statement. And then we go into the last couple of verses here, because now Jesus is piling on another, uh, another set of astounding statements. He says in verse 12, Truly, truly, and we've noticed when He wants to say something very, very serious that He wants us to remember. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these He will do, because I am going to the Father. Now, this is, a, this is a, a, quite a, a shocker, isn't it? Because we've already read the kind of works that Jesus did, haven't we? We've read about him changing water into wine. We've read about him uh, healing uh, the, the blind. We've read about him raising the dead. And then he says, says to us, you will do greater works than I have done. Actually says you will do the same works and you will do greater works than these. Now, I want you to see what he says here because he's not making this contrast as we might read it at first glance. He's not saying, I did these works... And then, I'll be done here. These are my works, and they stand. And then, you will go on, and you will do greater works. Now, let's read and see what he says here. He says, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. That is to say, I am doing. And greater works than these he will do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So it's not like Jesus finished and He's not going to be doing any more works and and we're going to do greater works. That's not the contrast. The contrast is this. The works that Jesus did before His death and resurrection and then the works that He will continue to do through His disciples after the resurrection. He says, I do these works, and you will do these works along with Me. And the, the, the point here is that there's going to be a difference because Jesus is going to the Father. That's the difference that's marked here. He says, you will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. This is the difference between the works that Jesus did before His death and resurrection and the works He does after His death and resurrection. Now let me just ask you something. Let me ask you. Has Jesus done more works, greater works, through His disciples since 
his death or resurrection in these 2,000 years of church history as he did in the two to three years before he died? Well, yes, he has. It's been an amazing set of works that he's done. The gospel has gone out through all the world. And uh, many, many hundreds of thousands of millions of people have come to salvation through Jesus Christ. Those are the works that He has done, and He has done those through His disciples. And how has, or why has He done that? Because He has gone to the Father. He is in heaven. He is with the Father. He's doing greater works. We will do greater works through Him. Now, um, in verse 13 and 14, we have the means by which we are to do these greater works. It's not the only thing we do, but it's the means that Jesus points out here. In verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so, the works are going, these greater works are going to be wrought because Jesus is with the Father. And these greater works are going to be wrought by what? By what means? By prayer. By prayer. We are uh, given these tasks to do, and we are told that we have a, a direct line to the Father and a direct line to the Son, and through prayer we are going to be able to do these greater works because He is with the Father and through the means of prayer. Now, Notice a couple things about this. It says that we are to pray in His name, in His name. And we have a modern custom of using a phrase at the end of our prayers. We say what? In Jesus' name, Amen. We don't find any prayers in the Bible doing that. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. That's an excellent reminder. But it's not just a question of tacking a phrase onto the end of our prayers. What is it to pray in Jesus' name? Well, it is to come before the Father, not in our own name, but in the name of Jesus. That is to say, in the work of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, in the merits of Jesus, and what He has done. And in addition to that, it requires that our prayers be in accordance with Jesus' name, Jesus' character, who Jesus is, who He is, and what His priorities are. So to pray in Jesus' name is in as Him as our representative before God and in accordance with His kingdom priorities. And then he also says something interesting here. First in verse 13, it says, If you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified. This is the purpose of our prayers. What's the purpose? That God might be glorified through these greater works that He has given us to do. And then finally, notice that prayer can be offered to the Father in Jesus' name, and prayer can be offered to Jesus in Jesus' name. Verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, that He would do these greater works. And verse 14, If you ask, what's it say? Me. Anything in my name, I will do it. Another indirect claim that Jesus is making to be God Himself. He is saying, you may pray to me in my name, and I will do it. Now, if this description doesn't line up with our experience in prayer, then it's an invitation for us to 
analyze our prayers and to see how we are praying. We're going to have, I don't want to anticipate this too much, but we're going to have an example of prayer in John chapter 17. And there we will learn something about the kind of priorities that Jesus has in prayer and the kind of prayers that are in Jesus' name for the glory of God and that God will always answer. And what are these kind of prayers? Well, he prayed that God would give eternal life to all of his own. He prayed that God would keep them in his name. He prayed that God would keep them from the evil one. He prayed that God would sanctify them in the truth. He prayed that God would make them one. And he prayed that they would be where Jesus is. These are Jesus' prayers. And let me ask you, will God answer those prayers? Absolutely. Those are the kind of prayers that God will always answer. They're in Jesus' name and they're for God's glory. We also have examples in Paul. There are a number of those. But I read one of them from Ephesians chapter 3 as we come to the conclusion here. In Paul, uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see how Paul prays? This is a prayer in Jesus' name. This is a prayer for our deepest needs. This is a prayer for the glory of God. And then, then he says, in case I didn't ask enough, He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So he asks as as high as he can. And then he says, and God can do even more than that. So, what do we have here? Jesus saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. But notice that he didn't go on to say, because I'm going to take your troubles away. Uh, All these things that are troubling you, well, don't need to worry about that. I'm going to take care of all those troubling things. You don't need to worry about those. He doesn't say that. Rather, he gives us three reasons not to let our hearts be troubled. First reason, we will be with him and with the Father forever. That's something we can bank on. That's the first reason. The second reason is, if we have faith in Him, we get to God. Because He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And the third reason, in this life, we're going to do greater things that took place in those two to three years in the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because He is with the Father, and He has given us the means of prayer. That we might pray in His name for God's glory. And He will do those things. Therefore, He says to us, don't let your hearts be troubled. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for these encouraging words. Our hearts are so easily troubled. And we pray, O God, that You would enable us to 
trust you, to trust Jesus, and therefore not let our hearts be troubled. That you would enable us to direct our prayers and our thoughts to eternal verities, to that which lasts, to a city that has foundations, to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as we walk through this life, that You would enable us to walk in those greater works that You have given us to do as we pray in the name of Jesus for Your glory. We pray, O God, that You would do all this and even more because we pray in the name of Jesus who is at Your right hand. Amen.